We continue our walk through the book of Genesis, and uh, the subject we're going to be looking at this morning deals with the God who provides continuity, the God who provides continuity, the God who promised Abraham that he would bless him, make a nation out of him, through Isaac, provides continuity of that promise. So open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 25. Page number 33, if you're using the church Bibles here. And our text is going to be from Genesis chapter 25, verse 12, and all the way to chapter 28, verse 9. We're going to be looking at the life of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Uh, Moses, in writing Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not give as much space to Isaac as much as he does for Abraham, Jacob, and uh, Joseph. Um, But Isaac still plays a very key role in God's covenant with Abraham to pass down to his descendants. And that starts with the promised child, promised son, Isaac. As we review the life of Isaac, uh, we're not only going to be learning about God's faithfulness in keeping all his promises, but we're also going to be learning five lessons from Isaac's life. Five life lessons, if you want to call it that way, from um, his life, and more importantly, we'll also see in what areas of Isaac's life we see that pointing to uh, uh, Jesus Christ. So quite a bit to cover this morning, but let's pray first as we look at uh, Isaac's life uh, and see the subject of the God who provides continuity. Father, we, we pray that your spirit will work in our midst to help us understand the text you have in front of us uh, as... as um, the people to whom you first wrote in the wilderness, help us to understand uh, the way they would understand it. And uh, But we have a fuller picture here because we see, uh, we, we view this from this side of the cross as well. So help us to see it in that light and uh, help us to apply the truths as it, um, as it meets us at the point of uh, where we are in our walk with you. So we trust your spirit to do all this so that Jesus would be glorified in his name, we pray. Amen. The last time we looked at Genesis, we looked at the life of Abraham, and we stopped with the account of his death in verses uh, 8 through 10 of chapter 25. Uh, The story ended in verse 11 with um, uh, God blessing Isaac after Abraham's death as the stage is set for God to continue his work uh, through uh, Isaac. And in verses 12 through 18, Moses gives a short account of um, Ishmael, the other uh, son of uh, Abraham through Hagar. And um, we see in those verses, uh, Moses describing who has the 12 sons that were born to Ishmael and how uh, um, how, how they lived uh, in different um, places. But we also see um, uh, Ishmael uh, dying at the age of 137. And the story then shifts to Jacob and Esau, uh, basically the two sons of uh, Isaac. Uh, and um, we already saw last time in chapter 24 of Genesis how God brought uh, Rebekah as a wife to Isaac. Uh, and uh, in, in verse 20, uh, Moses gives a one-line recap. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah and um, that she was the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paran Aram, that's Syria. And... Um, she also happened to be the sister of Laban, the Syrian or the Aramean. And then in verse 21, we'll pick up the story. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. It's interesting to note that both Sarah and Rebecca, through whom the promised seed would continue on, had problems in producing children. But unlike Sarah, her mother-in-law, or Rachel, her daughter-in-law, Rebecca did not have Isaac. Have bear children through a surrogate, through a slave woman. She was content to let Isaac pray, and we can be confident she too prayed along with him for a child. Notice what happened according to the second part of verse 21. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. Verse 22 says, The babies jostled each other within her. It also tells us babies in the womb have real feelings. They have personalities, even before birth. So, yet another case 
a pro-life. Yet why Christians should be pro-life. Babies have feelings. And that Hebrew word there, jostled, it suggests a violent struggle. It's an unusual struggle, but it's a violent struggle. So Rebecca wondered, why is this happening to me? And as a result, she went to inquire of the Lord. And goes to the Lord for answers. And verse 23, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. This revelation by God that the older will serve the younger, very contrary to the customs of the day because it's usually younger serve the older. Yet we don't read anything about Isaac or Rebecca protesting it. They simply accepted it. Interestingly, Paul, the apostle Paul would use this God choosing Jacob over Esau to defend God's sovereign electing purposes in Romans chapter 9 verses 12 through 13. The point is what Paul was trying to make and what scriptures make is this. God as God has the right to do whatever he chooses to do and whatever he chooses to do is always right and just. See God is not like us in a dilemma. Should I choose this or should I choose that? Whatever God chooses is always right. It's always just. Verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, footnote says, meaning hairy. Uh, after this, the brother, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, meaning he grasps the heel. Right there, we are told about the nature of the two. Jacob and Esau and they were given names in keeping with their appearance and their behavior at birth. Isaac, we are told, was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So remember Isaac was, uh, Isaac married when he was 40. Children was born 20 years later. That's a long waiting period but they continued to pray and leave it in God's hands. Verse 27 gives a brief description of what interested the boys as they grew up. Esau, we are told, became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. And Jacob, we are told, was content to stay at home among the tents. And then in verse 28, we read something that will help us understand the later events. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Parental partiality evident right here. Isaac seems to be a man given to the pleasures of the flesh, mainly food, which drew him to Esau. Rebecca, even though she was aware that God had chosen Jacob over Esau, the promised child, should not, as a mother of both, have shown partiality either. So both father and mother failed here, a failure that would bring them great pain in the years to come. Good point for parents and potential parents to remember. Love your children equally, whether they live up to your expectations or not. Back to the story here. Verses 29 through 34 describe how the conflict between the boys that started in the womb continued later as well. And it continued to escalate even more. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Edom meaning red. Jacob, instead of sharing food with his brother, realized this was a moment to exploit. There's a schemer in him coming out again. One of the initial stages. The scheming nature is evident. So notice what he did. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. He saw a weak point. He immediately, his manipulation, that's his nature kicked in. And he says, Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. The ancient Near East records tell us one could legally sell his birthright for a price. This was the price, your birthright. Notice Esau's sad response. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? What a carnal man, totally driven by his appetites. He wouldn't have died by waiting for a few minutes. Think about it. He wouldn't have died. This man is a hunter, which means he's a strong man. But all he could see was the smell of the food, totally driven by his appetites. And then by his decision, we also see 
he didn't care about the spiritual privileges of a firstborn. Yes, God had told, but he didn't even care. To me, all I want is that stew right now. I cannot wait to gulp it down. Even if it burns my tongue, I need that food and I need it right now. And Jacob, the scheming brother, wanted to make certain Esau couldn't go back on his word. So notice what he did, verse 33. But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. He wanted to seal the deal with the oath. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentils too. He ate and drank. Then he got up and left. Notice those words. Ate, drank, got up, left. Let's eat, drink, be merry. For today we are here, tomorrow we are gone. You see that there? So, or in this manner, by doing this, Esau despised his birthright. He didn't care one bit about it. Sad story. He lost it once for all. Hebrews 12 tells us he could never get it back, even though later he had some kind of a remorse. And the story shifts back to Isaac in chapter 26, where we read about Isaac facing two problems. First problem was a famine. And second problem was a conflict with the local people, the local Philistines over water rights. Look at the first problem, the famine problem. Verse 1 describes, now there was a famine in the land. Moses is very clear here. He says this famine was different from the previous famine in Abraham's time. He wants to make sure that this is not something that Moses added. Moses saying this was clearly a separate famine. Isaac planned to go to Egypt just like Abraham did earlier. But he stopped at Gerar, which was a border town on the way to Egypt. As he's there in Gerar, he meets the king of the Philistines, a fellow by the name Abimelech. Same name was the king that Abraham met also. So some people have said it's the same record. No, it's not. Abimelech could have very well been a title or the same name again given. It's clearly a different event. And uh, verses 2 through 5 tell about God appearing to Isaac. God did not want him to go to Egypt. He told him, stay here. And he reassures him by restating the covenant promises given to Abraham and his descendants. In both of these problems that Isaac faces, critical problems, but during those critical times, God comes to reassure him of his promises. That's what God does to you and me as well, often. When we are down, he brings his promises to our forefront so that we can continue trusting him and not driven into panic. The Lord appeared to Isaac, verse 2 says, and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. And then he says, Stay in this land, right here in Gerar for a while. I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring or seed, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me. It's grounding that on Abraham's obedience and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees and my instructions. What an assurance it must have been for Isaac during a time of great crisis. So verse 6 says, Isaac stayed in Gerar. So far, so good. We look at this, we say, that's obedience. That's faith. It's great. But unfortunately, notice, even though Isaac believed God enough to stay in Gerar, he still took matters into his own hands to protect himself. In other words, he could believe this God enough to stay there, but he could not believe God enough to trust him, to protect him. While he was there. I will be with you. I will bless you is what God said in verse 3. But his faith didn't go far enough. Here's another lesson to learn. We cannot be half-hearted when it comes to believing God. I'll speak more about that a little later. But look at what happened next. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. Where did we read something similar to this before? Genesis chapter 13 and chapter 20. Abraham did that. Same lie which the father said, the son now 
repeated like father, like son. Sad, isn't it? Again, parents, yet another lesson to learn. Children tend to follow in our footsteps. So we better be careful what kind of footsteps we're leaving behind. Isaac, what is he doing here? He's risking Rebecca's purity. God just said, through you, I'm going to multiply all these descendants. He's risking Rebecca's purity, not to mention destroying the covenant promises which which hinged on the holy seed coming through his, this line. Obviously, this incident occurred before the birth of the boys. Uh, Moses is not always chronologically, he follows the chronology. He sometimes moves things around. Why do I say that? I say that because if Rebecca already had the children, there's no need to say she's my sister because no one is going to harm a mother and a wife with uh, two children. Uh, so he resorted to lying. But thankfully, as we read verses 8 through 11, God himself intervened, exposed the lie, and protected Rebecca through it all. Second problem that we see Isaac facing here is conflict with the Philistines. It was a water problem. Verses 13 through 22 describe the Philistines. Every time he digs a well for his cattle, the Philistines would come and take over that well. So there was a conflict. And again, in this time of great trouble, keep in mind, for you and I, we will look at what is a big deal about a well? But this is an agricultural background here. Everything thrived on cattle. Cattle need water. So every time you dig a well, which is not easy, you dig a well, now you have to keep moving when that uh, well is taken over by the people of the land. So God appeared once again to Isaac, encouraged him to endure by repeating his promises. Look at verse 24. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham, do not be afraid. Why? Because he was afraid for I am with you. God always says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Again, God is assuring him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In response, Isaac built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. According to Genesis, this is the only altar Isaac ever built and as Isaac's servants built yet another well now God caused Abimelech to come to Isaac and make peace with him and no longer trouble him or his servants over water issues and the chapter ends with a note about Isaac and Rebekah being grieved because Esau marrying not one but two of the Hittite women showing his lack of concern over spiritual issues when it comes to marriage he should have learned my grandfather was careful that my father Isaac would not marry among the Canaanites. He didn't care. See, Esau never had any desire for spiritual issues. None whatsoever. So he marries Hittite woman. That caused a lot of grief to parents. Yes, parents, Christian parents would grieve when their children make wrong decisions when it comes to marriage. Young people, here and here well. Your parents, your father, your mother, when they tell you to marry right according to the scriptures, it's ultimately for your good and for God's glory. When you grow older, you will realize the value of such wisdom. Pay heed to them. Then comes chapter 27. One of the dark chapters in the Bible about human scheming and that too between family members. It's one of the darkest chapters. It starts with Isaac initiating the events. Verse 1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were weak so that he could no longer see, he was blind by now. He called for Esau's older son and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Direct contradiction to God's word. Isaac is now taking matters into his own hands. I choose to give you the blessing instead of the blessing going to the second one as God clearly commanded. So far Isaac has clearly proved he's a godless man. Yet, Isaac doesn't see it. He sees Esau 
as my son, not as a man who was frivolous about the spiritual issues. He didn't care. He married the wrong woman. He sold his birthright. He didn't care. And he yet wants to bless him. All because he went by fleshly desires. No wonder the New Testament stresses about the sin of gluttony, which we don't ever talk about. How many lives destroyed because of slavery to gluttony? If you are such a person, pay close attention. If you're driven by fleshly appetites, fleshly desires, this chapter is a great warning. What's sad is that Rebecca could also cook this food the same way Esau would cook because verse 9 tells us, Rebecca confidently tells Jacob, I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. And later when Isaac eats, he couldn't know the difference. Which means he could get that food from his wife. Think about this. That, that's what the story says. I'm not reading in between the lines. I'm just reading the lines. But yet, maybe he liked Esau because Esau was a hunter, man of the outdoors. I, I like his, I like this guy. Whatever be the case, He's acting in direct contradiction to God's word. Again, he's jeopardizing the covenant promises. Verses 5 to 12, to 12 talk about Rebecca overhearing Isaac. She wants, she wants Jacob to step in so that Isaac would, I mean, so that Esau would not get the blessing. I guess we can sympathize with Rebecca in that she wanted God's will to be done. She was willing to bear the consequences from Isaac. Because Jacob says, what if he curses? Don't worry about it. I can take that curse. I just want to make sure you get the blessing. So in one sense, yeah, what she did, we can, we can see that. But on the other hand, taking matters into one's own hands by using deception is not right either. Point is, we must always seek to accomplish God's will. In God's ways, the means matter. More on that a little later. So Jacob, even though initially hesitated, based on Rebecca's assurance, now he proceeds in verses 11 through 13, uh, goes on and then verses 14 through 26 describe Jacob successfully deceiving Isaac, who then proceeded to give him the blessing, thinking all along he was blessing Esau. Look at verse 27 on. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, because remember Jacob put on clothes as though Esau uh, would to resemble like Esau. He caught the smell of his clothes, blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's riches, abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. Here's thinking, you know, that the younger is going to bow to you, even though God said the older will bow to the younger. And then here's Genesis 12 verse 3 echoed. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. So the Abrahamic covenant, the promise is going to Jacob, even though Isaac thinks it's Esau. And the remainder of the chapter describes Isaac and Esau both finding out about the deception and Isaac He's got no blessing to give to Esau. All he can do is a prophecy. He prophesies about Esau's future as one who would live a violent life and far from the blessed life. And as a result of this deception, what happens is that Esau holds a grudge against Jacob and wants to kill him as soon as Isaac dies. Rebecca, hearing this, she wants to save Jacob's life, sends him to her brother Laban's a home uh, to another country far away and a plan that Isaac also agrees upon. And as Isaac sends Jacob, thankfully, we find Isaac repenting, even though the text doesn't say he repented, but we can see he gives the blessing to Jacob, knowing fully well it is Jacob. Look at chapter 28, verses 3 through 4. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that he may take possession of the land, so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. So he now says, okay, the blessing belongs to you. So you can see there, 
So repentance is no longer resisting God's will. In verses 5 through 9 end with Jacob heading to meet Laban and Esau. And Esau at the same time taking more wives. This time from Ishmael's family in an attempt to win the favor of Isaac and Rebekah. It's just a mess here. Just a total mess. And later in chapter 35 verses 28 and 29 we read about Isaac dying at the age of 180. A very long life of which at least the last 20 years of his life he lived blind. Why did God keep him that long? We don't know but there are reasons known only to God. Even when we lose certain faculties God still keeps us and Christians can still serve him as long as they can do with whatever God has given them. Not a perfect life but God still kept his covenant promises by providing continuity through this imperfect man, Isaac. What lessons can we learn from, uh, from this man? As I mentioned at the beginning of the uh, message, five life lessons I see as we survey Isaac's life. Here's lesson number one, and it is this. Faith cannot be half-hearted. Our faith cannot be half-hearted. In Genesis 26 we read that Isaac had enough faith to stay in Gerar. But sadly, it was not a wholehearted faith. He relied on his human wisdom by calling Rebekah, his sister, to protect himself. This, despite knowing what happened when his father Abraham used the same line God exposed. In the end, Isaac was also put to shame publicly and that too before unbelievers. Point is this, we cannot have one foot in the camp of faith and the other foot in the camp of unbelief. We cannot be divided in our loyalties. We cannot say, I trust God wholeheartedly and at the same time rely on our own wisdom and plans, especially when those plans lead us away from God's clear teaching. Lying, deception is a sin in the sight of a holy God. We must have a commitment like the psalmist in Psalm 119. And verse 80. Notice what the psalmist said. May I wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly, wholeheartedly follow your decrees that I may not be put to shame. Because if I'm put to shame, I'm putting to shame the name of the God I represent. And for that not to happen, it's only one way. Wholehearted obedience to God's commands. Half-hearted faith will always lead to shame in the end. Lesson number two, even in famine, God can provide for his own. Even in famine, God can provide for his own. God has the power to provide for his children. God's provision to Isaac, even in the famine, is yet another reminder of this truth. Yes, there was a famine in the land according to chapter 26 and verse 1. But look at chapter 26 and verse 12. Chapter 26, verse 12, says Isaac planted crops in that, in that land because he stayed in Gerar, the land where God told him to stay. And the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord, Yahweh, blessed him. Whether it be a hundredfold or just enough for today, the Lord always provides for his children according to their needs. He was and continues to be Jehovah Jireh, our provider. That's why Paul would remind the poor believers in Philippi these words in Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 and my God will supply all your needs all your needs underline that all your needs according to the riches of his glory or according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Jesus told us in Matthew 6 that our Heavenly Father who cares and provides food even for the birds will care for us so that we don't need to be giving ourselves into anxiety, to worry. We don't need to panic or tend to hold tightly to our finances when times of trouble come, when we hear one negative news or the other. We can continue to trust in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to provide for our earthly needs and continue to be open-handed to those in need at the same time, believing that our God is not limited by the economics of this world. Even in famine, not only does our, does our God have the power to provide, but
more importantly, he is also willing to provide for our needs. A compassionate father, a loving, gracious savior knows our needs and he will always, always provide with food and clothing. We shall be content, says the apostle Paul in First Timothy chapter 6. Lesson number three, God is sovereign and will accomplish his purposes despite human schemes. That's another truth we learn, another life lesson we learn from Isaac's story. Isaac, yes, Isaac jeopardized the covenant promises by compromising and putting Rebekah in a spot, but God still sovereignly overruled Isaac's actions and protected Rebekah. Again, we see Isaac blatantly choosing to give the blessing to Esau, then Jacob. Despite the scheming, a wise God will use human failures to still accomplish his promises. God said, it's Jacob through whom I'm going to further the covenant and it's Jacob through whom I will and I have furthered by covenant. A sovereign God will accomplish his purposes despite wicked human scheming. That's why the Bible repeatedly stresses to us that God is sovereign and will accomplish his purposes. We don't need to give in to manipulation and scheming. Let me show you three passages that highlights God's sovereignty. Psalm 33 verses 10 through 11. The Lord, Yahweh, foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but contrast, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Yes, nations and peoples can try to thwart it, resist it, but God's purposes will prevail. Isaiah 46 verse 10. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. That's sovereignty. What a beautiful text. Job realized God's sovereignty. He could praise God for that at the end of all his suffering. In Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Satan does not win at the end of the day. Human opposition, they don't win at the end of the day. God in his sovereignty allows evil. Even the greatest evil that you feel you're suffering now still happened under the sovereign hand of God. And God wants us to accomplish his good and glorious purposes through that wicked act. So yes, God is sovereign. He will accomplish his purposes no matter what. That is why it is important for you and I to learn this lesson and don't take matters into our own hands, whether it's a result of fear. Abraham feared. He was impatient. I'm not Abraham, Isaac. He feared there's a famine. Something could happen. Then Philistines there's another fear again there. There's impatience. God, you told me to stay in this land. I need to be patient for you to work out your plans. But no, rushing. Rushing again into giving the promises to Esau instead of Jacob. God will always win in the end. No use fighting against him. Paul was told by Jesus, it is useless to kick against the goals. You're only hurting yourself in this process. Don't fight God. Submit to him. He is sovereign over all the events and will accomplish his purposes no matter the opposition. We cannot outsmart God by giving into sinful scheming. Lesson number four. God's will must be done in God's way. Otherwise, it will bring a lot of pain and misery. Rebecca, she may have had all the good intentions to ensure Jacob and not Esau got the blessings but she still needed to rely on God to bring about his promises to fulfillment by using deception, trying to help God, giving a helping hand to, give an assist to God. She brought a lot of pain and misery to everyone. This same Jacob whom she loved, she would never see him again. Because by the time Jacob returns 20 years later, Rebecca is gone. She's died. Only Isaac is alive. And family divided now. How sad. How sad it is for a mother to see children from her own, own womb divided. If only she had known the outcome of her actions. That's why we must wait on the Lord not to rush and take matters 
into our own hands. Listen to the words, the wise words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64 verses 4 and the first part of verse 5. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. There is a connection here. God acts on those who behalf on behalf of those who wait for him. And who are the ones who wait for him? They are the ones who gladly do what is right, who remember God in all their ways. They don't take shortcuts. They don't walk in disobedience. And for those kind of people, even when the waiting is hard, God promises, I will act. But it should not be sinful desires trying to twist God's hand. Just because I'm waiting, I deserve you to act on my behalf. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for something that is contrary to God's will? Then that is a sinful waiting. That's putting the Lord to the test. I'll wait till this person gets converted, but I'm not going to break off that relationship. That's sinful waiting. I'll wait. No matter the outcome, Lord, I will not take matters into my own hands. Even if that means tears and suffering and heartache, that is what I will choose to do because I know you are there with me all the time. And through this, you're going to make me even more like Christ. That's the better way to look at things that will help us to wait. Jesus also didn't go to the cross right away as soon as he was born. He had to wait. He had to wait and go through so much during those 33 plus years. Shortcuts always yield the rotten fruit of pain and misery in the long run. We never lose by waiting on God. Do you ever look back at your life and say, too bad, I waited and things worked out good. What do you always say? I regret not waiting. I regret rushing. I regret acting impulsively. That's why it's very important. Shortcuts are not good. Let me give you a couple of examples. Sex is something good that God ordained that is to occur within the confines of marriage, not before. If we forget that and give in to the flesh, great misery follows in the later years. In the same way, even church growth and seeing conversion is good, but God's will is that it should happen in his time through the preaching of the gospel. If we forget that and compromise the message in order to get quick conversions, it will only be false conversions. God's will must always be done in God's way in order to experience God's full blessing and not experience misery and pain. Lesson number five, last lesson. It is important to run the race faithfully to the very end. To the very end. See, Isaac started out really good. How do we know that? Go back to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. I want you to see verses 7 through 9. Here's Abraham taking Isaac with him as God called him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Verse 7. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Notice through all this, now Isaac's got the answer. Where's the lamb? I guess it's me. But you don't read about Isaac resisting that or running away. Isaac by now is a teen. He does not resist. He, like his father, trusted God to the point of his death. He's seeing the knife coming down, the father lifting up the knife. Remember, both Abraham and Isaac did not know God would intervene and stop. That's faith. He started out so beautifully, so beautifully. But sadly, in his later years, he succumbs to the desires of his flesh and did things contrary to the word of God, especially when it came time to pass on the spiritual legacy to the next generation. But thankfully, before Jacob departed to meet Laban, we do read about Isaac willingly blessing Jacob 
he did accept God's will by blessing Jacob once again wholeheartedly. We're not told much about Isaac's faith in the last in his last years. All we know is he was blind for 20 plus years. Remember, he was blind, which led to Rebecca and Jacob deceiving him. And when Jacob returned, it's 20 years later. So all those 20 years, just a blind man. God kept him alive for a purpose. We can only hope he faithfully discharged his duties during those years. It's important, folks, that we finish well. Good start does not always guarantee good finish. Just like bad start doesn't have to mean bad finish. Those who start out bad can finish well also. But for today's focus, I just want to focus on finishing well. That's why we must be always on guard and strive to remain faithful to the very end by God's grace. We should be able to say, like the Apostle Paul said at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Listen, there are a lot of dangers as we get older. The tendency to relax, the tendency to live, to, to satisfy the pleasures of the flesh, creep up. It's very easy. And it's easy to convince ourselves by saying, well, you know what? I think I've earned this. It's time to fulfill the pleasures I've listed on all my bucket list. Let me take it easy for the rest of my life and still serve God in the leftover time I have. It's not that I don't want to serve God. But let me make sure all the pleasures are covered. Then I'll fit God. In the leftover moments. That's sinful thinking. As we get older, we must focus on spending more of every minute that is left in the bank for us, so to speak, to serve the Lord in whatever capacity He calls us and with whatever strength He gives us, so we maximize the remaining time on earth. God cannot be sidelined to get the leftovers. But the best of what we can offer with our time, talents, and treasures. So five lessons we learn from the life of Isaac. Number one, our faith cannot be half-hearted. Number two, even in famine, we can trust that God will provide for his own. Number three, God is sovereign. Will accomplish his purposes despite human schemes. So no use fighting against his will. Number four, God's will must always be done in God's way. The means matter for the believer, not just the end. Otherwise, it will bring a tremendous amount of pain and misery. And number five, it is important, folks, to run faithfully to the very end. I looked at the lesson five and that encouraged me earlier during the last song. You know, it's just a beautiful song. Saying, I was just praying, God, the remainder of my life, I want to be even more dedicated. That was my prayer while that last song was sung because obviously the text is in front of me. So it's important. It's important we learn from the life of Isaac these lessons. Now, remember we've been talking about how do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? How do we see Jesus in the story of Isaac? There's three ways we see it. There's many, but for the sake of time, I'm looking at three ways. Two ways we're going to compare Abraham's offering Isaac as a sacrifice to the father offering his son Jesus. That's in way of comparison. And the third one is we have contrast. Contrasting Isaac's sacrifice to the sacrifice of Jesus. So comparison number one. Look at Abraham's life of Isaac and compare that to the father's love for Jesus. In Genesis 22 verse 2, we read, Then God said, this is to Abraham, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Folks, the first time the word love appears in the Old Testament appears here. And it's in the context of the father's love for his son. Sacrifice the son whom you love. Now compare Abraham's love for Isaac with the father's love for Jesus, his son whom he loved and still offered him as a sacrifice for sins. Matthew 3.17 And a voice from heaven, this is Jesus getting baptized, and a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And in John 3.16, that very famous 
passage for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have life did you know in Matthew and in Luke the first time the word love appears it appears in connection with the father's love to his son Jesus and it's the same in Mark chapter 1 verse 11 and Luke chapter 3 verse 22 first time the word love appears in all the gospels it's in connection with the father's love for his son both Abraham and God the father so to speak they love their sons very much yet only one God the father went through the process of putting his son to death Abraham in his mind went through the process but it was not an actual event completed but the father not only went through in his mind but in actuality gave his son comparison number two both Isaac and Jesus carried their crosses so to speak look at Genesis 22 verse 6 Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac because he was going to later place Isaac on that very wood that would consume him Jesus we are told in John 19.37 carried his own cross to Calvary yes Simon helped him a little bit but eventually when that mount came see carrying his own cross he went out to the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha so both Isaac carried his cross Jesus carried his cross and in terms of contrast between Isaac's sacrifice and sacrifice of Jesus this is the this is the glorious thing. Go back to Genesis 22. We're going to see verses 11 through 12. Notice God stopped Abraham who was about to plunge the knife into Isaac's heart. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He replied, do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. God obviously knew from the get-go what would happen, but God wanted Abraham also to know there's nothing between God and me. There's no idols. Isaac is not going to be an idol. And God provided Abraham a ram to offer in the place of Isaac as a sacrifice. But when it came to Jesus, there was no withholding. There was no substitute, no stopping. It's very likely commentators believe and the Greek translation of the Old Testament also comes to help here where when Paul in Romans 8.32 wrote what he wrote about God's great love and sacrificial love in giving Jesus he had Genesis 22 verse 12 in mind as a contrast. He who did not spare his own son Abraham spare your son withhold your son but he Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, along with him, graciously give us all things. Isaac, Abraham's only son, was spared when it came to his one and only son. God the Father did not spare him. He did not withhold his son from the cross, even though the son pleaded with him in the garden of Gethsemane. He left him there to bear the full wrath for our sins. There was none to stop the father's hand to say, stay. None. The father's hand brought down that knife. Justice struck the son on Calvary on that dreadful day so that you and I could be redeemed. In that sense, Isaac's Incident on Mount Moriah is a contrast to Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary in the sense Jesus' sacrifice, there was no stopping. Paul's point is this. If this loving father did not withhold his best, his son Jesus, from us and to give him for us, we can be sure he will not withhold Whatever we need for the remainder of this earthly life, whatever is worrying you right now, whatever has got you in despair, you can be sure. He's not going to be told what you need. And not only that, give us the best of everything, starting with Jesus, all other things that we need. That should motivate us to endure. That's why Paul 
places that in the context of Romans 8, 31 through 39, where nothing shall separate us from the love of God and Christ because he did not spare his son. In the light of that, Paul tells believers, endure. When that suffering comes, when that tears seem to be unceasingly flowing down, endure. God is not given upon you. God knows your needs. God knows your heartaches. God knows your failures. He will carry you. Every breath you take is one more breath you've drawn from the bank. That's not going to be filled up more. One more breath before you and I are with Jesus. So Paul says, endure. If there was another way for us to get right with Jesus, to get right with God, God would have stopped that knife from plunging into the heart of his son. There is no other way to have forgiveness for our sins. That is why if any of you here are still far away from Jesus, come to him as you are. You don't need to stand up and come to the front. In your heart, run to Jesus and say, just simple prayer, I have sinned against you. I don't want to live like this anymore. Forgive me. Forgive me. That's all. Save me. Cry out. He will hear that prayer. He will give you a new heart. New life. Put his spirit inside of you. And help you to run this race. Believing that he who did not spare his own son. Will give me his son. Along with all other things I need. If I keep clinging to him. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. That's the confidence for God's children. And for the rest of us, let's make sure every moment of our lives counts. Let's not give in to sin and temptation or take shortcuts. Let's keep clinging to Jesus, always waiting for his timing for all things. Let's labor to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Remember Jesus himself said in John 17 and verse 23 that the Father loves us with the same love with which he loves his son. I tell you, there's nothing more comforting in life than knowing that you and I are loved the same way Jesus is loved by the Father. Because when you come to Christ, when I come to Christ by the grace of God, we are united with Christ and the Father sees us as he sees his son. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will seal these truths to our heart. What a faithful God you are. You keep your promises despite human failures. But help us to learn these lessons and help us, Lord, to grow in our love for you who gave your son so that we could have life. We, your enemies, deserved your wrath, but you made us your children. What great love is this? Thank you for that. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.